Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Amen. All right, I'll warn you before we start tonight, Uh two disclaimers. One, this is an amazingly convicting chapter. So if anybody's convicted by this chapter tonight, I didn't pick it. Don't get mad at the messenger. I'm just teaching what it says. Number two, I'm going to guess that tonight, many of you are going to be disappointed in the teaching tonight. I'm I'm thinking this will happen. Either that it'll be too long, or for some of you it might be too short. Or, or it could be that I go too fast and I go through the references too fast, or I go too slow and repeat my points too much, right? That could happen tonight. Or it could, I, could, I could also say that maybe I speak with too plain spoken a language and I don't elevate and honor the topic with my language. Or it could be that I'm too erudite and I use too many complex words and make it confusing. So if any of those things happen to you tonight, you're well within the topic. Um, because we're getting into complaining tonight, and that's what we're doing. That's what this whole thing's about. Um, let's start in verse one. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and His anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place. Tabera, which means burning place, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. So we get to learn throughout this chapter a few things about complaining. In context, in the book of Numbers, they have prepared to journey with the Lord. They have packed up camp. They are now moving, right? The, they have, they've started the movement, and then the complaining starts. And they've been there for a year. But as soon as God's people start to move, complainers show up. That's lesson number one about complaining. That's how it always works. As soon as people start doing things, people show up to complain about what's being done. And that just kind of happens. So there's no transition here from the previous chapters. There's no contextual clause at the beginning of the sentence. It's just a reality, and it starts with now when the people complained. It doesn't give a reason or a topic for their complaints, because usually complaining is pretty empty. There usually isn't anything there. And the phrase there in the Hebrew is that the people were complainers. Not necessarily that they, it says now when the people complained is better translated, I think, now when the people were complainers. And the Lord got to hear all that. So another idea about complaining is God hears it and he listens to it. And it generally ticks him off, right? Because complaining is essentially not being content with what God's put in your life in front of you. And these people get to go to the Holy Land. I'll get on my pedestal later. The word complained is anon, which means to murmur or show oneself as sad, to be upset about something, to just complain um, or to be a complainer. It's not something that anyone else does. It's something that I, Sean Dickers, does. It's not something that's done as a verb. Another way to say it, it's something that we are as a human being. It is the nature of humanity in the flesh is that we are complainers. So this chapter is going to deal with bad ways to handle complaining. The first one's one, just that general murmuring and being kind of discontent. Um, And then we're going to get into other kind of types of complaining and even the right way to take our complaining as complaining human beings, what to do with it and how to handle it the right way, which Moses models for us. The word heard, the primitive word for that is, uh, or I'm sorry, the word, the Hebrew word for heard right there is the primitive root. And that's important because God hears them at all levels and all types. It's a primitive root word. So there's no way in which God didn't hear them, right? He heard them in all tenses, past, present, future. He heard them in all types. He heard them at all levels of, of complaining. So he heard them in general as a root concept. So God's given them in numbers so far. He's given them the law. He's given them order. 
He's given them a promise of prosperity. He's given them justice through Leviticus, right? He gave them a legal code. He gave them how to act and how to have mercy on one another. He set up a leadership structure for them. He has provided manna in the desert for them for now for almost a year, and they still complain. And that's why it displeases the Lord, because it doesn't matter how much he's done for them. There's still things to complain about. It says elsewhere in the Bible that God is slow to anger. This one took him about a year, but eventually he gets angry and you start to see these kinds of things. And so the fire of the Lord burned among them. It doesn't say that he targeted people. Many people think that he kind of took out the initial complainers, um, but it just says it burned among them. So it might be that he just decided the next complaint I hear, that person's gone. And he just started burning people up literally in the camp is what it says. So the fire of the Lord is not defined here. It's an odd word that doesn't get used in a lot of other places in the Bible. Um, the only other places it's described is that God is it has a fire that's comforting to people. So the fire of God that is comforting to some is destructive to others. Kind of like when Jesus said, I didn't come, I came to divide, right? And he divides families from each other. Um, the same Jesus that brings a lot of us comfort brings some people real consternation and contention and disagreement. The outskirts of the camp is another interesting word. This chapter is packed. Steph was laughing. She goes, are you going to get through all this? The outskirts of the camp at the end of verse 1 is another kind of idea around this. It implies that there's individual targeting around the outer edges of the camp. In other words, the further away that people got from the kingdom of God, the more likely they were to be burned. That's a principle that we take throughout the rest of the Bible. The closer you are to the tabernacle, the less likely you are to get burned by these kinds of things. So if you want to find complainers, find people that are on the outskirts. This was one of my thoughts. Every church we've been to, the complainers are the people that don't do anything, right? They just complain and murmur all the time, and they're never active. They never participate. They just have issues. And this is different from having honest theological differences with the church or having, re like, there's reasons why you would go or not go to a church, and discerning those is very different than what we're talking about here. This is just general discontentment. And if you're that discontent, like one of our pastors used to say, don't go away angry, just go away. There's other churches to go to, right? So the people of God complain. Um, God honors Moses in this. It's interesting how Moses prays and it's handled. Uh, God actually stops his burning upon the prayer of one of his godly people. So the, as this chapter kind of moves forward, we're going to see Moses get more involved. So and I have, I have already kind of implied, it's amazing to me that God waits on this until after they break camp. It's when God's people start to move that God's going to continue to purge or clean out um, the complainers. It shows that there are people that live amongst God's people that are not God's people. And that's something that in the New Testament we're warned about too, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so they complain. My grandma used to always say, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. And this is where that comes from. That idea that if you've got something, because we're human, we always go to a place and we have things to complain about. And it's just who we are. Um, but you look at the discipline of that generation. In more eloquent words, um, there's the famous words about Teddy Roosevelt, the, the man in the arena. You know, it's not the critic that counts. Have you heard this quote? Some yes, some no. Shoot, I should have left it all in there. This is right before that quote. And Teddy Roosevelt is talking to the people of America that are complaining about things. And he says, the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. A cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work, which the critic himself never actually tries to perform. This is an intellectual aloofness, which will not accept contact with life's realities. These are all these are marks not of the superiority of the person, but weakness. It is not the critic who counts. Oh, I did keep it in here. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena. People that do things don't complain a lot because they know how hard it is to do things right. And when people th go th don't do things, they always have something to say or something to add to it. So the people cry out to Moses. It's funny they don't go to Moses otherwise, but when they've got problems, they go to Moses. 
Um, they could have gone to God because their complaints were with God. And they didn't do that, did they? They went to another human being who has no ability to solve whatever their complaints are. And right now, we don't know what their complaints are, right? We do in the next paragraph, but right now, this is just general moaning and complaining. So in the end, they turn to a real man of God and a real leader when it's time to complain. Um, and we see the relationship between Moses and God and that God stops. Verse 4 actually does start with a new section, the word now. So there's a division between the first three verses and verse 4. They're two different instances. Verses 1 through 3 are general kind of murmuring, complaining. But general 4, they have a specific complaint. We are upset about this. And a group of people can gather together and go to their leaders and say, we don't like this. And that's a specific complaint. So let's look at that one. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving so the children of Israel also wept again. <laughs> this is where we get the phrase crybabies um, because they're grown adults crying and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up and there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Oh, so there's so much in these verses. All right. We have a specific complaint. It's about food. But is it about food really? And we're going to... So first, the, the burning has stopped. So the God's, res, God's response to general complaining was, was a place of burning. This next place is going to get named after the grave. So this kind of complaining is a very different kind of place. So in Exodus 12:38. We saw the mixed multitude came with them out of Egypt. And they seem to have forgotten that they used to be in slavery. Remember they cried out to the Lord when they were in Egypt? Please take us out of here. Stop this oppression. But look at how they refer to Egypt now. All they remember about Egypt are the cucumbers. This is interesting. But humans do that. We remember things wrong. And it's an interesting thing about memory. We always look at memory in really interesting ways, but we look at it often wrong. We color it the way we want to. So there's people like me that I'll go through the worst thing in the world, and a year later I remember all the good parts about it. And then there's people like my wife who remind me that that was not everything that was there. Right? And so we have people that remember things very differently, but forgetting history is one of the first steps of a complainer. In order to complain, you have to forget what God's done for you to get you where you're at. Nationally, for Israel to forget their history is how complainers get their footing. Because they've been saved from slavery, they've been brought out of the mire, and the only way to really complain is to completely disregard and forget history, and even better, lie about history. So, Jewish has linear thought as part of what God's helping these people to learn. But Egyptians have cyclical thought. Philosophically, these are very different kinds of thinking. Egyptians and Persians and Babylonians and Assyrians and Hittites and Phoenicians and Philistines all had religions where everything would come back around again. Therefore, nothing really matters, right? If you don't like what's going on now, just die and get reborn and there'll be a new thing that happens next. So they worshiped animals that would shed their skins like snakes and spiders that would rebirth very quickly and that, those sorts of things because death and rebirth was just part of the religions. But Jewish thinking isn't like that at all. It's linear. It means you come into history at a point, you have a role to play in that history, and then you die, but history keeps going after you're gone. That's Judeo-Christian linear thinking for history, right? So the mixed multitudes are probably thinking in very cyclical ways. So death and rebirth is always there. It's easy to forget history because it's all whatever happens next. Or as Janet Jackson would say, what have you done for me lately? Which is a joke we would get, most other people would. <clears throat> so there's lots of freedom that's come along, this just joy and safety that they've been given, this provision they've been given by God in a place that wouldn't provide for these people. They have complaints then about maybe God, and they just generally complain about the food. So their complaints are probably very specific, but what comes out is the meaningless little stuff. Because how do you argue with a good cucumber, right? But what their real issue is, is with God and God's provision for them. So I think it's kind of funny that what of all the things in Egypt, what they remember are fish and cucumbers, and they end their, their list with garlic, right? So of all the things to remember about northern Minnesota when we lived there, 
It was the River Jordan Cafe and these beautiful little sandwiches they'd make. The rest of it, we're okay to not be in northern Minnesota. But the, you do remember those little things that were awfully wonderful when they were there. So they yield to their temptations. I want to just, I want to pick this apart because I'm a complainer by nature. And I think some of us are. It's just how we are sometimes, right? So I really want to understand this. It says here that they yielded in verse 4. That means they weren't forced into it. They yielded to it. To yield to something doesn't mean that it's evil to have it happen. To think a complaining thought is not a bad thing. That's natural. Maybe they should have brought napkins to this get-together, right? Or maybe there should have been, you know, burritos at this breakfast we ate. Or you have some kind of complaint about something you do, right? That's natural. But what you do with it is different. You can yield to it and you can let it become taint and color the whole thing. Or again, like my grandma in that greatest generation, or you can just see the good stuff. And you can say, oh, those towels that we wiped our hands on were wonderful. And the lemon scenting was wonderful. And you can just have all sorts of things that you remember that are good. There is no temptation that has overtaken you, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, except such as common to man. To God, But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able with the temptation will also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. That verse is about temptation that we all have. And we all are, we are complainers. It's not that they complained, it's that they were complainers. And in this passage where they complain about something specific, they become that thing that we all have in our soul. We all have a, an old human living inside of us and a new one, a new birth in Christ Jesus. So these are things they didn't have to yield, but they did. And then the phrase intense craving in the Hebrew is ava to ava. It literally repeats the word, ava to ava, an intense craving. Translated, you could do craving as one word, but it's broader than that. Most of the time in the Bible, ava is translated as lusting. They lusted after lusting. And that's what they gave into. They just decided that their wants and their needs were a bigger deal. When, in Hebrew, when they use the word tw twice, it just means emphasis. We usually put the word super in front of it. So they were super lusters, right? And, but it, it adds emphasis when they use the word twice. The source here then of all of this craving is a covetous heart. They want things. Don't you? I mean, don't I? I all the time. We always want things. What, Grant wants a bigger truck, and we all know that, you know? Steph wants a bigger house, and we all know that. I like three meats on my sloppy joe, and we all know that. We all want things. The question is, do we give in to those things? Do they dominate how we think and what we do? Or even worse, do they take the place of God and become an idol in our life? So that idea of intense craving, ava to ava, that lusting after lusting is to just spend your life wanting the next thing all the time. And I don't know anybody who doesn't have this temptation. We all have it. It's common to man. So Paul addresses this, I think, as the primary cause of 1 Corinthians. Um, but this idea he does, he, he actually talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10 in the context of complaining. So he's dealing with the same topic. So I want to read from 1 Corinthians 10. And I'm going to wait until Steph flips there. I'll get That'll be something she'll complain about later. 1 Corinthians 10 is how Paul handles this issue of complaining as a way in, in how we do it, right? So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. Don't complain as some of them also complained. He's talking about the people in the wilderness. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, for they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as common to man. Right? So those are the verses. The next verse, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, he's saying this in love to people he cares about, flee from idolatry. See how close complaining is to idolatry? Paul uses them just as one thing. Because the nature of complaining is to think you deserve something more than what God's put in your life something better, something bigger all the time. Better, faster, stronger, nicer. So how far can we push our wants and our needs before we start bumping into idolatry? That's a struggle. 
and it's a struggle every person has and every Christian has, don't stand thinking you don't have this or you're in danger of falling. The first step to getting this stuff right in life is acknowledging it about ourselves and knowing that this is who we are. It's not just something we do. Who's going to give us meat to eat? What an odd question to ask when the problem is lusting after lusting and craving. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's just a a weird thing to pick a fight over. Like, why don't we have meat? Um, Also note that they're they're crying about this when they there's no law in Leviticus that says they can't go hunting. There were animals out in this wilderness. They could have gotten some stuff and gone and taken care of it and got some meat. There's also no rule against them killing their own sheep. And we know that they would have had herds of um, oxen and they would have had herds of sheep and they would have had goats. So there's no reason they couldn't have killed a goat and eaten it, right? That's what herds are for. So they have all these things accessible to them. It's odd that they complain about stuff when they could have just gone and fixed it themselves. Another lesson about complaining. A lot of times when people complain, it's stuff they could just take care of themselves. And I think sometimes that's the right thing to do with complaining. If you see a problem, go fix it, right? If you see something messy in the house and you're the tidy one versus the clean one, just go make it tidy and bless your roommate, right? So they have fantasy history. They have faithless prediction of what's going to happen. And now they're complaining about something that they have the full ability to fix all by themselves if they just get up and get to work. God, however, doesn't do this. He, he, he's going to be amazingly graceful in this situation. So the people complain about these things. I find that when people complain about the faith, they often complain about the limits of faith. Well, if I become a Christian, then I can't do this or I can't do that or the things that I can't do which is kind of a complaining before they even submit themselves to the Lord, right? People want things their way. They, they say a thing here, the whole, their whole being is dried up. What's interesting there is that that's just not true. They're not dried up. They've been fed. They're healthy. And we'll see that in the next few verses. Liars tend to exaggerate their untruths, and they do it pro, uh, prolifically. Um, something becomes irritating and then it becomes bad and then it becomes really bad and then it becomes super bad and then it's the worst thing ever and then it's dooming them and then it's dooming everyone and now it's a horrifying destructive thing that will destroy our entire nation and that's the progress of lies it goes from little things to big things and that's what's happened with these people their whole being is dried up is just not true but I'm sure in their thinking they've built up this issue of manna alone as being this big thing. They've probably been complaining all year. And at this point in which they come to Moses, it is really the end of the world that they don't have their cucumbers. And reading it historically, it, it's Grant's laughing. It is kind of funny. But complainers do this to themselves. They get so worked up over little stuff that by the time they actually do anything about it, which is to complain, and complaining is not actually doing something about it. It's just bringing it to somebody that you think should do something about it. The best thing when you have this, and and this is the joy of being in leadership positions. When people come in and complain and you just say, well, well, what have you done about that? And they don't want to hear that. And it really gets them upset when you say something like that. But you can just kind of say, oh, well, what have you done to try fixing it? Uh, And you can really determine quickly if somebody's complaining or bringing a legitimate concern to your doorstep by if they've tried to do something on their own or not, right? Usually you can tell by the tone in their voice, but that's a good way to really lock it down. So throughout the week, if I've talked to you or met with most of you, I've asked the question, what are some of the most ridiculous things you've heard people complain about in the church? I grilled my family on this this week. We're trying to think through our whole history. What are all the things we've heard that people complain about amongst God's people? And you think like, God's given us salvation. He's given us fellowship. He's given us a cool apartment to kind of do this Bible study in. We're not all sweating and getting eaten by bugs right now. But oh, there are things to complain about. So here's my list. You ready for this? Don't try to write this down. It's not worth it. The choice of music. The seats are uncomfortable. That came from Twin Cities. Uh, The air conditioning is not working. That is almost a legitimate concern. But I put it on there because it's one. Music lyrics aren't appropriate. The songs are too long or they're too short. The sermon is too long or it's too short. Um, The sermon has to have a title on it. And if there's no title on the sermon, got that one personally after I spoke one week. Um, uh, 
The person says right too much. That came right from our own Bible study, right? <laughs> uh, the plant arrangement is not good. The plants aren't real. Um, they should be replaced. The organization of the church, this church doesn't start on time. It's all willy-nilly. There are other people in this church that are very annoying. That's one of the complaints. The carpet is not appropriate or good. I've told you that story before. The humidity level is not okay. The Bible version this church uses is not okay. The style of prayer that they do here is not okay. It's either too liturgical or it's too free-flowing and they let too many people pray, which is distracting. There's too many people in this church. There's too few people in this church. The youth group isn't doing what we think it should be doing or enough of what they should be doing. There's no youth group. Well, that's a problem. Tambourines are an issue in some churches. Tambourines, that's right up there with cucumbers. They don't do hymns at this church and therefore disregard their past or they do too many hymns at this church and don't respect current music. Grant had a number of music things that we had to add in. Lights and fog machines being inappropriate or needed. Dancers at the church being distracting or there should be more dancing. Um, the length of the sermon's too long or it's too short and not meaty enough. The prayers are too long or they're too short and, and not meaty enough. The number of verses covered in the given week, they just didn't cover enough verses because if you get used to a chapter in Calvary Chapel, this gets to be a complaint. Pastors will be like, do like a two verse week and the whole church is upset, which is a good problem to have. You got a whole church that wants the word. That's anyways, but it's a complaint. The decorations in the church kind of already said that with the plants. The volume of the music being too loud, the mix of the music being all muddy and you can't hear things right. The age of the congregants, this church is too old or this church is too young. I'd name the churches, but I don't know who listens. To <laughs> right. There's no outside church activities at this church. There's too much pressure to serve at this church. This church is too clicky and nobody welcomes us at the door. This church is too needy and we felt like we got mobbed at the door. <laughs> I paired some of these up just so you know. This pastor says too many dudes and mans while he preaches. That wasn't me, but you know who that was. Yeah, all right. This church is, these people here are too fake, right? These people here do not respect the Lord too much too traditional, too model. Here's the essentials of the people of God. I think it's all centered on the word of God. Either the word of God's being taught or it's not. That's a legitimate thing to ask about a church. Is there a fellowship of the saints? Do these people love each other? And can I see how Christians act by how they love each other? That's a core, right? It's right there. Is there active prayer happening in this church, either behind the scenes or out in front where other people can jump in? And is there a sacrifice of worship? And I mean worship like Leviticus, right? The music stuff can be really divisive, but there's Leviticus has a very broad definition of worship. Is there worship and sacrifice happening at this church? And I would say number five, is there any fruit of the salvation of new believers and the discipleship of existing believers? Those five things, those are the pillars. If those are there, all that other stuff is cucumbers, right? It's just cucumbers. And cucumbers are mighty good. And it's nice if you don't have plastic plants, right? But it's cucumbers. It doesn't matter, right? But in America today, we, we are complainers. It's what we do. Poor churches, I feel sorry for them, right? And how do you even win in those situations? And the reality is you've got to find the people that don't complain. And that's what God's doing in this chapter. He's going to help Moses get this taken care of. And they're going to start sorting this out. So Paul breaks it down even further than my list. He says the only two things you're looking for are sincerity and truth, right? In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. <laughs> it's my favorite verse. I want to be a new lump. <laughs> Since you wholly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, but with the leaven of, but, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If we are in sincerity and we are true, we are doing God's work together. Amen to that, right? 
verses 7 through 9 show that God is faithful in this. God kept his end of the bargain. And there is a description of what manna is, because this is important right now. If the complaint is about food, what kind of food are they getting? And the reality is they get donuts and bagels and potato chips to live on. That's not so bad. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its color was like the color of bedellum. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it on the millstones or beat it on in the mortar. And they cooked it in pans and they made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell in the camp at night, the manna fell on it. The point here is that this was good stuff. It's like eating cake every day. That's not a bad way to live. And somehow miraculously, this is nutritious too. They've lived a year on it and they're not dying left and right of malnutrition. So God has put some sort of, this is a miracle kind of thing. So miraculous that they put some of it in a jar and throw it in the Ark of the Covenant to prove that it existed while they were out in the wilderness. They kept some. So this problem they have, and this is another lesson about complaining, it's not actually a real problem. Their food situation is not actually a big deal. Now, not having air conditioning in your church could actually be a real problem. You could have people passing out during the service, and that's a disruption. But what color the curtains are or whether or not we replace the curtains, that one actually split a church believe it or not. Oh my goodness. So you get to have some donuts. It's all healthy. There's really actually nothing to complain here, but really there's no pleasing a true complainer because people that give in to complaining, that's who that kind of defines them suddenly. We all have the thoughts, but most of us put them away, right? We don't yield to it. So the food here is, again, an image of the food of the Word of God, the living water of the Holy Spirit, the direction of Jesus, the law and order that they have, the presence and power of God right in the middle of the camp. They also had trumpets for represent prayer. They can hear God's promises from Moses, and that's not good enough for them. God isn't good enough for them. And for me, that's convicting. Is God good enough for me? And is what God's put in my life for me to do, is that what's good for me? And am I content with that? And am I happy with that? Acts 20, Paul begs his pastors to watch out for people that'll come in because the people that want more are wolves. And these are the people you watch out for in the community, right? Know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So there's the tears of complaining, and then there's the tears of just beseeching people to avoid that sort of thing that Paul has. You've been saved from misery. You've been grafted into the vine. That should be enough, right? But this intense craving, this giving into the lust of lusting is to want, to desire, to always want more. There's never satisfaction. There's no peace in that. And that's what God offers. He offers peace. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we've been saying that verse all week. So there's the two ways to live. Always wanting more or suddenly finding peace in Christ. And that leads to actual happiness. The happiest generation America has seen in recent memory is the Great Depression people. You live through the Great Depression, and man, a pizza is like a fancy first-class meal. The way my grandmother treasured this pizza in her freezer for almost 20 years, it sat in that freezer because it was being saved for a special occasion. In her basement, she had an entire wall of water jugs that had been preserved in case the water goes out again. Like this is a generation, that Great Depression generation, they were thankful for everything. They could hear somebody come up on a Sunday morning and do special music for the day, and it was horrible, off-key and rotten. And my grandma would say, wasn't that nice that she did music for us? And she just loved it. It's like, are you tone deaf, Grandma? That was horrible. Thankfulness in everything, seeing God's gift in everything, it leads to happiness, and wanting all the time leads to complete misery all the time. It's amazing. So what do we do with complaints and issues when we have them? The next verses show us what Moses does because he's got complaints too, but look at how Moses handles his complaints. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. 
Moses was also displeased. So the infection of being upset goes right to the leadership. Because Moses doesn't want them all upset. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? That you've laid the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive these people? I love that line. Are these my kids? We went to a church once. And I was the principal in the community and we were visiting this church just when we first moved up there and kids were misbehaving before the service. And this parent honestly turned around to me and said, are you going to take care of that? And I'm like, they're not my kids. But in their head, I'm the principal of the high school. Those are my kids. And I'm supposed to be disciplining them on a Sunday morning. And we laughed and I think we were pretty young at the time. And we were like, I don't, that, that's your problem, not mine. I'll deal with them five days a week. Are they my kids, Moses says? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a garden, as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? Notice in 13 how Moses gives in to the complaint, right? It's not about the food. They could have got their own meat. They had manna, but Moses gives into it. He's distracted and set off course. For they weep all over me. Another great line. They weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. And I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me here and now. If I found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. God, I'm a failure because I can't do what these people want me to do. I'm a failure. And he admits it. He knows his limits and his weakness. He gives it to God. And it's a burden for leaders when people complain. It's horrible. It's really nice every now and then when people just come up and say, thank you. Thank you for all your work. But people generally don't treat leaders like that. And that you got to just know that when you're in a leadership position. You don't generally get thanked for doing great HR work. You know, People don't come back later and write you thank you notes. But you have to be in those leadership positions. You have to kind of take that burden and just know that it's your job. So first we have the burning of a general who knows. Second, you have the multitude who's named and has a specific complaint. Third, the whole, the whole camp is complaining to Moses. And then fourth, now we have Moses complaining to God. Four different modes of complaining, very different situations in each one. These are God's people, and that idea of complaining just infects the whole camp. You have a new friend. Snuggles has moved on. So Moses mixes stuff up here a lot. And what happens with the complainers with Moses, a godly man who God respects and has anointed and has chosen to be his leader, he gets off track and he has confused and chaotic thinking responding to these complaints. And that's the thing with complaining. It gen generally just makes things confused. First, I want to just go through this. In verse 11, it says, Why have you afflicted your servant? Did God afflict Moses? Or did the people afflict Moses? So Moses is mixing things up, right? Verse 12, these are not my kids. <laughs> That's true. They're not Moses' kids. But in saying that, Moses spiritually does feel some responsibility here, right? And that's why he's making this complaint to God. Paul sees his church in the same way where Moses says, these aren't my kids. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul owns it, and he loves these people. They're his children, right? He's taught them the word all by himself. And now they're big people doing the word teaching all on their own. And Paul's proud of them, and he loves them. And Moses is the opposite, right? He's like, I didn't make these kids. These aren't mine. Verse 12 says, you say to me, see how Moses is, is telling God what God said to him? Yet we have no record of God ever saying that. So either Moses is putting words in God's mouth here, or there's conversations that we haven't heard that aren't recorded. Um, their fathers, uh, Moses is also kind of twisting this around too. So particularly... You swore to their fathers in verse 12. So he's telling God what he said to their fathers, as though God doesn't know. 
Um, but he also swore that to Moses too. So it's not their fathers, it's Moses' father too. Moses is actually Jewish. So he's separate. He's basically saying them versus me and separating himself off. So it's a twisted truth. Verse 13 says that they can't get meat. That's true, but it's not exactly what was asked. He's adding to what God's words are. Verse 13, it says they're weeping all over him, but that's not what we saw in the previous verses. They weren't weeping all over him. They just complained. Um, they ask who, they don't ask Moses. Who is going to provide us meat? But they don't say, Moses, give us meat. So in verse 4, and that's where it says that, who will give us meat to eat? Moses is then misstating what the people said to him when he complains to God. You see how complaining just gets messy? There's tons of lies and mistruths here. And you can go parse through all these things. And in a real life conversation, if you try to parse it like that, people will hit you, right? They don't want to hear you splice their words when they're giving you a complaint. But in this, we get this opportunity to pick this apart. And there are so many lies mixed in with the truths here. It's just confused. So Moses is failing in faith. And that's unique to the Bible. And I want to just step out of the conversation for a sec and say, let's just appreciate for a moment that we have a scripture that shows us the weakness of the main characters in the book. No other religion does that. Because when humans make stuff up, they make themselves to be very, very good people, right? Joseph Smith, not a word to be said bad about him. Bhagavad Gita, all good. All the heroes are good. In fact, when humans make up a religion, the gods are flawed and the humans are perfect, right? When God makes up a religion, God is perfect and the humans are flawed. And there's a total flip philosophically there that's going on. So in truth, we have a flawed leader in Moses and he makes mistakes and, he's, and he mixes things up. God is very graceful in this. The good thing about this conversation Moses had with God, is at least he's going to God with it. Because God's big enough to handle complaints even when they're confused, even when there's mistruths. And at the end, he gets to a truth that is significant do not let me see my wretchedness. Moses recognizes that he is, in the sight of God, a wretched human being. Right? And it's not like that insecure, debasing himself thing. Moses has some self-confidence and self-esteem. He knows who he is in Christ, and he knows that in this instance, he is utterly at a loss as to how to handle this. And that's true. I think this is why a lot of times when people go to Moses with things, he says, he says just hold, stand still like he did a chapter ago. Stand still and let me go talk to God he doesn't know and he and he honestly is like i don't know what to do with it let me pray about it and i'll get you an answer when we think that our responsibilities are all on us the reasonable and true conclusion is that we can't handle it like if we want to do a trip to the dells the reasonable and true conclusion is we will screw stuff up it will not be perfect unless bonnie organizes everything right but even bonnie has to know at some level when you plan an event you plan for screw stuff to get messed up it just happens. Stuff goes wrong all the time, and Moses just recognizes it. When we see our failures as our strength, we begin to understand life with Christ. It's where we fall short that God can have the glory. It's when we don't do things right that God can be elevated to making that happen. You can ask my kids. I often speak horribly in that my words get mixed up or I'll say the wrong thing and instead of feathers, I'll say scales or I'll say, uh, I'll say names wrong and mix them up. Somehow or another, when I teach the Word of God, 95% of it comes out okay. And that's pretty much the Lord because it doesn't always happen that way for me, right? Speech doesn't always come easy. Moses understands that it's not his work. He should not be shaken by these afflictions. But he should know that he's appointed to this, 1 Thessalonians 3.3. Don't be shaken by this, Moses. Just know that it's your job. You're appointed to it. If we go to others with our complaints, as Moses goes to God, I like this idea where he says, you might as well kill me. Like, if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, Lord, and I can't do it, you might as well kill me now. Because Moses has seen God kill people, right? He just burned people on the outskirts. He killed Nadab and Abihu. Moses is with reverence and regard to God going, you might as well kill me now, Lord, because I don't know what to do here. And God has amazing grace because now Moses is right where God wants him, admitting his failings, knowing what they are, bringing them to God directly instead of complaining to Aaron about God, right? He's the only guy that goes right to God with his complaints, and God's going to have mercy on that. 
So everyone has complaints. Not everyone complains. And godly people take it to the Lord in prayer. Like that old hymn said, we take it to the Lord in prayer. When we do, God handles it. The older you get and the more you take your complaints to God, the more God reveals himself to you as the answerer of prayers. In fact, anytime something going wrong, you just say, Lord, you got to take care of this because I've tried everything I know how to do and I want you to take care of it. And then the Lord does. And it's amazing when that happens. Verse 16, so the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them and bring them to the tabernacle and meeting that they may stand there with you. I love God. He doesn't even deal with Moses' mistruths and misquotes and everything else. He just solves the problem. Moses, I want you to just get some help with your leadership. You don't have to bear all the burden. God gives Moses a team. This is an abundant answer to prayer and it's a wise and perfect one. Notice here that uh, it says, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you known to be elders over the people. In other words, Moses didn't disciple these men. So it's people you know to be a leader. And this is an interesting thing about elders that we get a glimpse on this. Elders are recognized here in the Bible. They're not chosen. Does that make sense? Moses is recognizing people that are already serving in the role of elder. They're respected by the people and he brings them in. So it's not that Moses goes and picks all his favorite people and says, I want these people to be my buddies. He says, go pick the people that you know to be elders of the people. That's an interesting kind of framework. We can talk about it later if you want to. So his first job with, with God is just to stand there and stand still, right? Gather to me 70 men that they may stand there with you. So that's the first thing he wants Moses to do is stand. Just stand. Stand with other leaders. They're a support. Verse 17, then I will come down and talk with you there, you being plural. I mean, he's going to talk to all of the men. I will take the spirit of the Lord that is upon you and I will put the same upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. God does not take Moses out of his role. He doesn't strike him dead. He doesn't let him get away from his responsibility. He just hears the complaining and then he says, I'm going to help you out with this and you're going to share the load. Like Samwise says to Frodo when he asks, let me, let me carry it for you a little while and I'll share the load. And the temptation of the ring of power is that it's mine to carry alone and I'll never share that. And that's what would kill Moses if he did that. And it destroys Frodo in the Lord of the Rings, right? So we have lots of literary images of this that are, maybe there's lots. I just like the Lord of the Rings one. But this idea of sharing the load is a big deal. And we do that and things go well. To share the load, you have to trust other people are also following the Lord too. The spirit will go on them as it has on Moses. Then you shall say to the people, verse 18, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt and therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. Moses has, he had to be thinking one of two things. Give me a break that you're going to really give meat to these complainers. Really? You're just going to give in to their complaints? And I wonder if Moses felt that way about it or if Moses is like, I don't know. Luckily, we don't have to guess what Moses thought was, wait, where's all the meat coming from? And that's what it gets to. You shall eat meat. Uh, we'll get to that in verse uh, 20, 21, 21. When he says, therefore, you will give you meat and you shall not eat. We see in verse 19 and 20, this is not a blessing that God's giving the people. It's the opposite, and Carol already gave this away. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. The only time food comes out of our nostrils is when we sneeze while we're eating or we vomit. And that's when food comes through the nostril. I had looked that up. It wasn't hard to find, which tells you how valuable the internet is. Um, and it becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? Notice how God is truth. He doesn't look at this being about cucumber. He says, you've despised the Lord. That's what's really going on here. 
that lusting after lusting is the same as despising the Lord, right? And then he says, he didn't, and, and it wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? That's the real problem they're having. Why are we here instead of back there? And the reason you're not back there is because you wind back there too. So Moses complained to God that he lacked the ability to do God's work, but the heart of Moses was to do God's work. That's the kind of complaining, if we're going to do it, that's how God wants our heart. That's what he wants to do in us. That when we complain, it's our own, we're complaining about ourselves and our own lack of ability to do everything God's put in front of us. That's the right kind of complaining, right? So if we are complainers, let us complain about the right things, right? If we complain about our desires, that's not good. We're going to vomit quail, right? I'm going to skip that. Despise the Lord. This is the truth of it. God gets right down to it. Verse 21, And Moses said, The people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot, yet you've said, I'll give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish in the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? Moses is essentially saying, God, there isn't enough food anywhere to be seen for this to happen. How are you going to do this, God? It's the same question that Sarah had when God said you're going to have a kid and she was, what, in her 80s? And she said, how's that going to happen? Is anything too marvelous for our God is where she came to. Um, but it's the same question. This might be too much for you, God. This is the same Moses that watched frogs come out of the sky. So let's just think for a moment. He knows God can produce frogs from out of the sky. His question shouldn't be how much meat, how are you going to get all this meat? His question should be, what kind of meat are you providing? Right? That would be the right question. But anyways, and Moses said, the people who I am among are 600,000 people, men on foot. These are hungry people. 600,000 men would be around 2 million people in general, if you count uh, kids and women uh, and retired folks. Um, verse 23, the Lord says to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? And I like that one. Now you shall see whether they, what I say will happen to you or not. Has the, art, has the Lord's arm been shortened? The Lord's reminding him of history, true history. I've done wonders in your sight, Moses. Have I become weaker since I did those things? And the answer, of course, it's a rhetorical question. And just so you know, the answer is no, God's arm does not get shorter. Amazing that he's praying for food for six million people, right? And this is the conversation he's having with God. Think of the things we pray about and the lack of faith we have around them. Like recently, I haven't prayed for six million sloppy joes to show up, right? That's not the conversation I'm having with God, but I still have a lack of faith over little things, right? Amazingly little things. And God can do anything he wants. Sometimes he holds back those blessings because abundance actually produces sin, right? And he gives us what we need at each step in our life. doesn't always give us abundance. Usually when we complain, we forget how big God really is, and that's the problem with complaining, that we forget that God is big enough to do anything he wants to, whenever he wants to, however he wants it. His arm has not shortened. If Genesis 1-1 is true, nothing's really bigger than that, right? If God created the heavens and the earth, he can feed six million people. That's, not, that's a very small thing to do compared to creating the whole earth and all the heavens. So God actually can do some new things. And the other miracle that most of us already know is if God can change my heart, which he has, like I'm not the same guy I was 20 years ago. That guy is dead and gone a long time ago. If God can honestly transform my spirit to turn me from that guy I used to be to the guy I am now, he can do anything, right? That's a miracle how he transforms a life and a heart and a spirit. Has his arm been shortened for us when we pray? Has his arm been shortened for you in your life? Has his arm been shortened in any way, shape, or form? Or do you still hold God up with the reverence that you should? Verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered the 70 men and the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took the spirit that was upon him and placed that same spirit upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them 
that they prophesied, although they never did so again. So there's this clear manifestation of God. And what happens is they all start prophesying. The Holy Spirit comes among them. Looks a lot like the day of Pentecost in the New Testament. Moses gets to see that God's spirit is on all these people, right? There's a visual and, and a confirmation, an audio confirmation. God's doing this. And those prophecies would have been things Moses already talked about with God. So you would have heard these men saying these things that Moses could confirm it. When God's will dominates, we represent an almighty God and we lead through our service to people. There's this cloud that they have over the camp, this visual showing, and we see a cloud here in verse 25, came down in the cloud, the cloud of God, the cloud of heaven, the same one that was over the tabernacle. It validates the moment as it always does in the Bible. It says they never did so again, so there's no adding to this. There's no repeating of this event. That means that moving forward, Moses just has to trust that God's working with these men. Even though there's no sparkly lights over their heads, there's no little wings that they get on their backs, they're just normal, average people that are doing God's work, and it's been confirmed. Verse 26, but two men had remained in the camp. So all these 70 men show up, and this happens. But there's two men that don't get there. For whatever reason, they don't get there. God still honors that Moses picked them. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the, of the other was Medad. And the dad being in both names is just an English thing. It doesn't mean anything biblically. And the spirit rested upon them. That's an interesting thing. So even the people that didn't come and, and quickly move to Moses' feet when they were called are also getting blessed by the Lord. God's blessing people even outside of Moses' inner circle. Now they were among those who were listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied out in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. This is big news. And Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' right-hand man, he's his assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Well, we can't have people doing God's work if it's not you, Moses. Isn't this the temptation that we just dealt with with Moses? Moses was taking everything on himself, and Moses gave him a way to give it away to some other people. And the first thing that happens is a godly man like Joshua wants to protect Moses' authority because it's Moses' authority that matters to Joshua, but he's still a young man, and Moses has kind of got to teach him, I don't want the authority. Right? Moses just tried to give it away. Like he would rather be dead than be in authority. Right? Which says a lot about leadership. Right? So Joshua, the son of Nun, like a good secondhand person, is trying to protect his boss. Moses, watch out for these people. They're gonna, they didn't listen to you and come to the camp, and now they're prophesying and saying what God's saying. Forbid them. And Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would be put put his spirit on them, and Moses returned to the camp, and he, he and the elders of Israel. Okay, Moses has learned his lesson then, right? He is happy with what God's done because he's seeing that God's blessing him and that this weight is coming off his shoulder, and he's like, praise the Lord. Joshua, if other people are doing God's work, praise the Lord. Let them do it. Oh, if our denominations would start to speak to each other that way, right? Oh, if there's fruit over there, well, we should critique what they're doing. Right? Or you can say, praise the Lord. People are getting to know Jesus over there. It's not my thing, but praise the Lord that that's working. The Lord's going to bless who he chooses to bless. And there will be growth and fruit where the Lord puts it. And it's not always with us. And that's part of letting God be in control and not us being in control. It's the first example we see of how to respond to godly jealousy. I ran out of time to look this up. There's two other examples of this. There are followers that come up to Jesus and say, there's people doing stuff in your name, and Jesus tells them to not to worry about it. Well, okay, let them do their thing. And then there's people that do the same thing with the disciple Paul, and they saw Paul, there's people out doing stuff, and they're doing it in Apollos' name or other people's names. And Paul has the exact same response as Moses, and so did Jesus. Praise the Lord, because God's doing stuff all over the planet. There's no one human being that's so important that God has to work through them. Right? God's doing things all over the place. So again, consistently when we see that kind of thing happen, mature godly people just say, great, let them do their thing. To be in authority doesn't means that you don't have to be in charge of everything. To be in authority as a worldly person, you have to have a, an iron grip on everything that happens. But a godly person in leadership really doesn't because God's the one with the grip on everything. 
It's not an iron grip, it's a loving and a compassionate one. So Joshua being conserved for Moses is not a bad thing, um, but Moses puts him in his place. Moses is not worked up about it, and he doesn't let Joshua put the burden back on his shoulders that the Lord just lifted off it. Right? And that's such a wonderful thing. God's answer to Moses' prayer here is an amazing blessing to Moses. So he's sharing the leadership. He's got good men around him. He's got a concrete example of that. Then the Lord sends quail, and we'll wrap up the chapter. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits of this above the surface of the ground. So the birds are flying at about anywhere from six to eight feet above the ground. They're just fluttering right here. Take a nice butterfly net and you can just catch them. They're a day's walk outside the camp. You want these quail, you gotta leave the camp of God to get them. Oh, this is a trap. These people are gonna go for it. Anyone who complained about me, you can bet they're getting up in the morning, they see all these birdies about a day's walk outside the camp and they're gonna leave God's presence and go after that meat. Trouble starts to happen when you leave God's presence and when you're not doing those things. Um, Arabs reported all the way up into the early 1900s that about once a year there's a migration of quail that try to cross the Red Sea or that area and it's an exhausting flight. So when they get to the other side, which would be Sinai, they are exhausted and they'll flop on the ground and you can walk right up to them and touch them but they're too tired to get away from you. So this phenomena that sounds like a miracle is actually not a miracle. It's happened through most of recorded human history. There are millions upon millions of these birds that fly into this part of the world and they just kind of flutter there. And they must have missed it, or it happens semi-annually or something. I don't know how that works, but um, all the way up into the early 1900s, they catch one to two million birds for food and quail's a delicacy. So this was the migration where they would do that because they were easy to catch. So the people stayed up all that day and all night and all the next day, and they gathered quail he who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. And I don't know what a homer is, but I think it's a lot of quail. So you're just running up and grabbing them. They're not hard to get. You're not hunting them. You're not working for them. They spread them all out for themselves all around the camp. You spread birds out to dry them, and you spread their wings to pull the birds out, but they're trying to preserve the birds as quickly as they can. But while the meat was still between their teeth, implying that they didn't cook the meat, they're just eating it raw. So you get this image, again, another Lord of the Rings reference, when uh, the steward of Gondor sends his son out in the movie to, on this death trip or whatever, and there's this scene where he's eating food and it's dripping down his face and he's just munching, he's feasting while other people are risking their lives. And that's the image you get here. There's these people that have left the camp and they're just gorging on this quail. It's a really vivid image. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibboth Hadava, which means graves of lust, because they were buried, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving, had lusted after lusting. From Kibboth Hadava, the people moved to Hazarath, and they camped at Hazarath. This is the first leg of the journey, is a bunch of complainers and God basically ending a lot of their lives. The numbers, when they took the uh, census at the beginning of numbers, there'll be another census at the end of numbers. One thing to note is how many people die and they get replaced by new babies, but essentially the numbers stay about the same. So we're losing lots of people and populations usually grow exponentially. So there are thousands of people that are dying in this scene. Now Moses had his prayer answered, the people got their prayer answered. Moses was blessed by his answer, and the people were plagued by their answer. So when we pray things in alignment with God, he'll answer our prayers, and it's a blessing. If we pray for things based on our lusts and cravings, we may get those things, and it won't be a blessing. It's often a curse. So the wind blows, the quail show up, they spread them out, they eat them, they get a plague, and we get to see this image. So we have complaining in general, we have complaining in specifics, we have complaining to God with our problems. We have Joshua complaining to Moses about who should be in charge. Um, and we have this idea of this, how God responds to all complaints is often to just give people what they want. 
And you think about people that turn away from the Lord. Often what they get, and this is part of how God disciples his children, is they get exactly what they want, right? If they turn away from the Lord for pride, for greed, for lust, they tend to get what they're looking for. And it tends to not be what they wanted. At the end of the day, it's not what they desired, right? So you can climb to the top of the corporate ladder and find that it's, you're still you when you get there. And you still have to deal with you and your Lord at the same point. A very great plague doesn't define how many people are dead. Maybe half, if you take general birth rates, is what most people think. About 50% of the people would have died in this instance. But there's going to be other places where people die too, so that's all debatable. And frankly, it's not something to complain about. right? It's one of those things where the Bible doesn't give us the numbers, so we don't have it. One last thought. Here, Israel learns a key lesson, and that is to not give in to your cravings and to lust after things that God doesn't want for you. The kingdom people should be craving God. So we should be craving after God with our things. And we should want more time for God, more time with God, so that he can work in our lives. Amen to that? All right. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Lord, there's always things to complain about. And Lord, you know my heart. You know our hearts. You know what those things are. Lord, may we never give in to those things and yield to them. Lord, you've given us a new spirit and as a new creation, you've given us a new heart and we don't have to give in to our cravings. We don't have to give in to our, our lusts. And Lord, we don't have to give in to complaints. Uh, you've, you've given us no temptation that every human on earth doesn't have. So give us the strength to resist those things. Um, Lord, help us to come to a point in our life when we realize that on our own strength, we can't do anything and you might, might as well kill us now. Like Moses did, and Lord, help us to just turn to you with that and say, Lord, we can't do anything outside of your strength. So give us your power, your strength, and your glory. Give us an abundant joy, Lord, as, as, as the opposite of a complaining heart. May we be thankful in everything. And Lord, we don't want a great depression to coach that into our spirit. Help us to just take on that spirit because you've put it in our hearts. To always see the best in people, always see the best in our situations. To always love and care and elevate and look at the things that are worthy of praise things that are good and true and right and noble, those things are what we set our minds to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.